let's start. So today we are discussing the new Ranscog term prom guideline. As of recording, it hasn't yet been released. But we will check that uh, <laughs> we will before check, we, we will do. check the changes. <laughs> so in terms of what changes that have happened, so the plain language summary right at the start has not changed much. There's just minor changes to the wording. Recommendation one, uh, which is the initial assessment, basically states the initial assessment of the woman presenting with term prom should have the diagnosis confirmed, uh, along with a confirmation of gestation, presentation, and assessment of maternal and fetal well-being. So basically they should have a clinical assessment um, with rupture of membranes. And where the diagnosis is uncertain, your ancillary tests are a sterile speculum, um, and if there's still further uncertainty, diagnosis of uh, amniotic fluid in the vagina with something like an amnesure may be used. Um, the wording here is really, all they've done is delete from the previous guideline the use of pH-based tests such as nitrazine, um, but it certainly doesn't exclude those. I think it's just simplifying the language again. They've also not mentioned... Um... That digital vaginal examination should be avoided um, unless immediate induction is planned, um, which is an interesting uh, yeah, I don't phrase it, to admit. I don't think it's to say that they suggest it, but I think maybe they're just trying to stick with one one recommendation. Yeah, I'm not sure. And that one there remains as a consensus-based recommendation, whereas quite pleasingly, um, the next few recommendations have grade A um, backing, yes. which is quite nice. So um, the new recommendation too is that women who are known to have GBS colonization or who are being treated as positive for GBS, then prophylactic antibiotics should be commenced and early planned birth or in induction is recommended. Yeah, so basically the recommendation is the same, but it's changed from a consensus-based recommendation to grade A recommendation. So, GBS positive, recommend induction now and give antibiotics. Seems sensible. That's, yeah. So, the old recommendation three, which was not really a recommendation at all, uh, more of a statement, antibiotic use in term prom appears to be associated with a reduced risk of maternal infectious morbidity. I don't even know why I said that because it's gone. So that is now out of the guideline. Yeah, we think that's good. That's They've removed something that wasn't a recommendation in the first place that was open to interpretation because perhaps you could interpret this association of reduced infectious morbidity with a recommendation to give antibiotics, and that's not the case. They've definitely removed that, and in a later recommendation they're actually saying don't give antibiotics as part of routine care without mm. good rationale. This new guideline's a lot more explicit yeah. in recommendations. Um, so, and then recommendation four has also been removed. Um, yes, from the old guidelines. Yeah, because that... it's just a common sense thing. It's saying mm. that women with PROM at term should be informed of the risk and benefits of the options of active and expectant management. So that's, I think, just a basic expectation. Mm. I'm um, glad that it was consensus-based. I think yeah. we all should <laughs> yes. strive to inform women of risks and yeah. benefits of and what we're recommending. In New Zealand, the HDC requires that clinicians provide patients with all options of care available to them. Mm. 
regardless of whether you can actually physically offer it to you yes. uh, <laughs> at your DHB or not. But that is yeah. a story for another day. Um, and so in the new guideline, uh, recommendation three, we will go through these again, uh, the, the ones that are actually current. Um, in women with ruptured membranes at term, induction of labour within 24 hours is recommended where practical, i.e. as staffing and bed space allows. So that is great to see. That is a grade A recommendation um, and sort of covers the old recommendation four and five but changes what the actual recommendation was. So in the previous guideline, it was more explain risks and benefits of both and give the option, whereas now we have a clear uh, path of recommendation. Mm. I think sometimes when a guideline says, that these options exist or discuss these options. It is kind of like saying we don't really have a preference for either and so do what you want to do, mm. um, which, yeah, again, it opens things to interpretation, whereas they now give a good table to back this recommendation up that active management is the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, but it clarifies it in terms of the definition, which helped clarify something for me. Like I think I used to think that your active management was induced as soon as possible whereas i thought expectant management was to wait 24 hours and then induce but it's clarifying that active management is induction within 24 hours of rupture of membrane so either now or within or come back at 24 hours any of those are fine but that's what active management is and that's universally recommended whereas expectant management is to wait beyond 24 hours for labor to happen spontaneously and there's really no benefit to doing that yep so recommendation four in the new guideline in women with ruptured membranes at term who are negative for gbs and where timely induction of labor is planned antibiotics should not be prescribed as part of routine care this is a grade a recommendation and is new for this guideline yeah, so this clarifies that it, it, yeah, it, it is counter to the previous recommendation that wasn't a recommendation about antibiotics uh, <laughs> reducing infectious morbidity to flat out saying don't use antibiotics unless you've got a good reason. So don't use it for routine care because PROM at the end of the day can be membranes have ruptured and then go into labor an hour later. So don't give antibiotics in that context. Um, but then this also covers the Australia and New Zealand ways of practice. Uh, our understanding is that in Australia, many more um, women receive universal GBS screening at 35 weeks with a low vaginal swab, whereas in New Zealand that's very uncommon practice and we use a risk factor-based approach. So for most of the women in New Zealand with term prom, their GBS status is unknown uh, so unless they've had a urine a uti with gbs then they are yeah, just sitting in the risk factor based approach uh, in which case you defer to the uh, gbs guideline which would suggest antibiotics for a range of risk factors including membranes ruptured for more than 18 hours so I guess our reading for New Zealand-based practice is that for term prom alone, don't give antibiotics. But after 18 hours... If there's still no baby... Yeah, start <laughs> At that time is when you start it. Yeah. Which, you know, can be a bit... Sometimes when they're fully and pushing at 18 hours, we know that you actually need the antibiotics on board four hours before 
the baby's born for it to have any effect can sometimes seem a little bit pointless but that is our approach yeah plus even if they're fully fully and pushing in quote marks that baby won't always be delivered within four hours due to the way things are in real life true <laughs> true true and then recommendation five is semi-equivalent to recommendation, well, it is equivalent to the old recommendation six, aside from the fact that A, it's been reworded slightly, and B, it is now grade B, uh, a grade B recommendation compared with a consensus-based recommendation. So this whole guideline is just generally a bit more um, evidence-based. Um, so induction of labour with oxytocin is the usual method of induction, but in women with an unfavourable cervix, prostaglandins may be used. Yeah, so specifically they've re- removed the sentence prostaglandins may have an important role. Uh, so now they're basically they're not condemning the use of prostaglandins, but they are just saying that they don't seem to have any evidence to suggest them um, or to support them. And they still just referenced the 1996 term PROM trial, which used prostaglandin gels and found no benefit to their use in the context of term PROM. There's notably no mention of misoprostol, which we uh, have had a little discussion about. Um, so that will vary depend on the, depending on the centre you're working at. We've both um, had experience in centres where misoprostol is in fact used in uh, term prom and um, with to good effect and with a reduction in the number of vaginal examinations overall. And I think specifically the advantages of misoprostol would be oral misoprostol. You're avoiding your mm. infection risk, whereas vaginal prostaglandins are by definition vaginal, vaginal and <laughs> potentially introducing infection. So basically if you've shrommed with an unfavorable cervix, and unfavorable cervix could still be based on a speculum examination, so it doesn't imply a VE. Um, then giving gels is going to be a balance between the risk you have of doing a vaginal examination and therefore introducing infection versus ripening that cervix in a way that you feel syntocin on is not going to achieve. Um, And perhaps an example of where that would be appropriate is if you're waiting for staffing, you can give a dose of gels if that woman's really not going to receive synto in the next six hours. Uh, but basically I think the jury is out and there's nothing really to support the practice of prostaglandin versus just continuing to wait. But yeah, like I say, it's also not condemned. But what I really like about this guideline is it's gone from a six recommendation guideline to a five recommendation guideline, but it actually has more real recommendations than the old one. And not only that, but there are fewer words used. So this is easier to read in a clinical context. It's clearer. It's, yeah. Yeah, It's grade A. (laughs) It's grade A. So uh, just sort of a bit of an outline about term prom. Incidence stated in the guideline is 8%. Of of the 8%, 70% will commence labour spontaneously within 24 hours. However, some women, the remaining 30%, will have latency uh, from prom to delivery if managed expectantly. 85% of women will labour within 48 and 95% will have laboured within 96 there are risks with rupture membranes, um, of which we all know they are uncommon, but they include cord prolapse, cord compression, and placental abruption, particularly in the context of polyhydramnios. And then delayed risks include maternal and neonatal infection, um, of which the neonatal infection can be devastating. 
we will talk about that um, a little bit further on when talking about um, the differences between expectant management and induction of labour, but essentially can result in chronic lung disease, cerebral palsy, and sometimes even death. Yeah, and these are really important because we're biased in working in obstetrics that if we get the baby out alive, then that's a great outcome, with, especially if they've got um, good APGARs and good lactates. But that's not where the story ends. And ultimately, the outcome of interest is how that baby does. Mm. So, Yeah, I will usually counsel, particularly if women are wanting to go home and pee prom or prom, it's, it's death and severe disability. Because one is devastatingly sad, the other is devastatingly sad and has significant impacts on their whānau and society into the future. So recommendation one in the new guideline, the initial assessment of women presenting with term prom should include confirmation of the diagnosis, gestation, presentation and assessment of both maternal and fetal well-being. If there's diagnostic uncertainty, first do a sterile speculum. If there is ongoing uncertainty, consider a test for the presence of amniotic fluid like an amnesure. Yeah, so the Amnesure, they specifically give some limitations and caveats to its use. Um, I think our consensus is that PROM is, di- is a clinical diagnosis, mm-hmm. um, but it can be uncertain, and Amnesure or an alternative test is an adjunct and can be really helpful in certain situations uh, where it's really going to change your management and you're not confident either way. Um, but because of its false positivity and false negativity, it shouldn't be used blindly without a good history and sterile speculum uh, and perhaps a bedside ultrasound scan. So it does mention in this a bit more information about false positives. It does say that false positive uh, tests can happen 19 to 30% of the time in women who have clinically intact membranes uh, in the context of the symptoms of labor. Uh, and that you can get false negatives in the context of prolonged rupture of membranes where there's just really very little amniotic fluid left in the vagina. Um, You can have false positive tests in the presence of blood, semen, alkaline antiseptics, certain lubricants, trichomonas, and bacterial vaginosis as well. Hmm. So it's, I mean, I remember being taught that this was basically a perfect test and it just isn't. Mm. They actually do make the statement that these tests should not be used as part of routine assessment of women um, with ruptured membranes. So it should be used when you have clinical diagnostic uncertainty. There's also been an FDA um, letter to healthcare professionals. Mm, It was initially sent out in 2018 And yes, the update is 2018 as well. But essentially, it states exactly what Sam has just said. Um, And the FDA is concerned about misuse, over-reliance and inaccurate interpretation of the lab test results. They are aware of adverse events related to the use of ruptured membrane tests, including 13 fetal deaths and multiple reports of health complications in pregnant women. They don't go into detail about this, but they then... The next sentence states that the FDA has received information indicating that healthcare providers may be over-relying on the ruptured membrane tests, um, despite labelling instructions warning against this practice. So that kind of seems that it's not just do a swab, it's negative, send the woman home completely reassured. There may be something else in there, but it's not elaborated on. But I guess that would be the main thing is someone has shrommed, there's a false negative, 
you send them on their merry way, they're reassured they've seen you and go on to develop choreo. With yeah, because there must be a reluctance to represent within hours with, with the same symptom. I think that most people would want to give things more time and that risk exists then. Mm. Um, and I mean, just practically how that could happen would be a fairly decent history of Shrom, um, but then it might take a few hours to get to hospital and then certainly many, many hours until you actually get seen. And especially if you've just been up to the bathroom and you've got a cephalic presentation with the head you know, blocking the pelvic outlet, there really just may not be much amniotic fluid left. And while the baby still keeps producing it, so your bedside scan, there's fluid there, um, your amnesia could be falsely negative. And likewise, getting a false positive based on BV or um, blood or semen um, could have devastating, or, or just even sometimes just annoyance uh, consequences. So mm. that certainly happens when you have the Schramm diagnosed at 20 weeks, who then gets twice weekly clinical assessments for the rest of their pregnancy. Mm. There's blood tests and speculums and swabs and scans. It's a and no sex for the rest of the pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. I think it's quite important just to remember that we should actually be doing, I mean, this is someone coming with abnormal discharge. And so we should be doing a proper assessment and uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, PCR, and vulvar vaginal swabs and endocervical swabs for culture as well. And that means, I mean, I know these swabs do take a couple of days to come back, but it does mean then that if someone is reviewing the results, that you, you can always revise your diagnosis um, in the in the context of further information. And particularly in the context of semen in the vagina, that's just history <laughs> again. I think that when you ask that question about intercourse, I, I'd like to give a reason because it's quite an invasive question. Yeah. And if you don't understand the relevance of a question, I think it's fair to maybe not say that that's happened. So, Yeah, agreed. I've had a few women who give a negative answer to the midwife and then I come in and ask the question again and they give a positive answer. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do a test which is interfered with if you've had intercourse. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I can't trust right. the result if that's happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And again, like all things, you normalise it because this happens all the time. Well, it is normal. Yeah, yeah. Weirdly, <laughs> at two o'clock on a Wednesday, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's quite it's normal, out, turns yeah. out. <laughs> okay, so uh, management. How should women with term prom be managed? Uh, yes, basically, this is a discussion, a three-way discussion between you as the obst obstetrician, um, the midwife, and the woman in Ufano as well. Um, but ultimately there is reason for us to recommend induction of labor within 24 hours. Yeah. So where GBS is present, I think that one's mm. fairly obvious. Look mm -hmm. at a GBS guideline. GBS sepsis is uh, rare but awful. Um, and it's a, yeah, well, not entirely preventable, but we can certainly reduce the risk by reducing the length of labor and giving antibiotics. But in those who are known to be GBS negative or don't have risk factors, it's, it, and when you're going to say, well, actually, uh, rupturing your membranes prior to the onset of labor is a natural thing, that's where it's maybe perhaps a harder sell uh, to say, let's start intervening. Mm. But this guideline gives really good a good simple table of the relative risks um, comparing active management with expected management. And there's basically no negatives. So active management reduces maternal chorioamnionitis. It reduces definite or probable early onset neonatal sepsis. It decreases neonatal um, antibiotic use. It decreases neonatal admission to 
the special care unit or intensive care unit. And there is no difference in, no statistically significant change in cesarean rate. Um, but if you're going to look at the way it's uh, biased, then in the planned birth group, there is fewer cesareans. It's just not statistically significant. So I think the common misconception um, and avoidance of induction is that it's going to increase the risk of an operative birth. Um, and at least yeah, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's quite a hard sell because it's it, um, it's contradictory, is that a word, to what a lot of women think. Um, and people's risks and perception of risk and perception of all of these things can be really, you know, coming from um, the clinical angle seems kind of warped. It's like you'd be happy to take this risk but not this one. It just doesn't make any sense a lot of the time. And I, I sort of, there's no downside in terms of infective risks to mum and baby, but I can, I can see that for some women the downside would be an induction and they bring in hospital with an IV line and monitoring. And that when you've got such a strong view of how you want your labour and delivery to go, that can be a downside. But that's where um, the midwives can come in really handy in that three-way discussion and and I think as well safety netting and particularly where I work at the moment saying look if we delay the chance of you getting an induction date or time is you know it just gets smaller and smaller so why don't we book a date or why don't we book a time and you know you can go home in the meantime against advice sometimes but um having some kind of safety net in place um for for these women yeah yeah and 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 the evidence uh evidence-based outcomes of this uh, is only one component of that discussion Mm. um below this table it actually has a sentence saying that women in the planned early birth group had a more positive experience than in the in the expectant management group so that's a you know an important subjective outcome Mm. um so just because you're having an induction doesn't necessarily mean that your birthing experience is going to be worse yeah I think as well, sort of off to the side, but women go into the room to be induced and just a lot of them just stay on the bed. It's like the beds are on wheels. You can move the beds, you can sit on a Swiss ball, you can have your music playing, you can have the lights off. Like it's, you can, we can do a lot, put positive affirmations and stuff up on the wall, have the whatever on in the background, have have whoever you want there to uh, some extent, depending on lockdown status. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think we don't do well in getting women to make the room their own sometimes. Anyway, back to the guideline. So we've kind of talked about um, active management, um, i.e. commencement of induction of labour or Caesar um, within 24 hours if the group B strep status is unknown. That kind of ties in with the above. It's Active management is recommended. Um, and then if they're group B strep positive, get on with it basically so that's um recommendations two and three grade a evidence however we do have the women who um may choose expectant management um and that's fine but there is quite a um a few bullet points there of caveats for these women so things like um, cephalic baby and it's fixed, no signs of infection, normal CTG, clear fluid draining, um, adequate resources and staffing to provide the support that they need, a commitment to regular assessment, um, reliable transport, so car, phone, someone to drive them, and then the documented plan for follow-up or that safety netting that, that we talked about already. 
So the next section goes on to recommendation four, which is about antibiotics. They've simplified and reworded the section. It's really to just a sentence each. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. GBS positive meta-analysis uh, does. Oh, what? What does it say? GBS negative. GBS negative. That's right. Mm. Okay. Start again. So first point, women who are known to be GBS negative meta-analysis shows no benefit to giving antibiotics prior to labor in the context of ruptured membranes at term uh, when induction of labor is planned. So what that translates to is give the antibiotics once in labor. Mm. Uh, The next point where the GBS status is unknown, then go per the GBS guideline. So... Either you, so I guess if you, that basically makes it a risk factor based approach. So if they hit 18 hours, been pen. Once or, in the labor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Once in labor. Yeah. Sorry. Which different places, course. yeah, do practice differently. Um, but yeah, once in labor. Once you hit 18 hours, you qualify for being something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put it that way. Yeah, yeah. But I do, yeah, uh, we were talking about this before. Perhaps there's an argument they're going to receive, anti- they're very likely to receive antibiotics either way. Is there harm in giving the antibiotics prior to labor? I don't know. Well, but ideally no you have benefit. it for the four hours beforehand. So in some women, uh, you know, multips who are now starting to niggle at the 18, 17, 18 hour mark. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Oh, you can't trust a multip, but I guess for a primer. No. Yeah. Um, and, and there's no, it doesn't give advice about whether or not giving it at the time of the first VE, but I think that is common practice. Mm. Um, and then chorioamnionitis, just remember, that requires broad-spectrum antibiotics. Penicillin alone is not enough. Flick it over. I'd just like to go back to um, point A, so women known to be GBS negative. So I just want to clarify the point about GBS screening. Um, in New Zealand, GBS may show up on a urine or on a swab, and that usually implies heavy colonisation. Women can still be colonized with group B strep and have it not show up on a routine swab because the swab that we should be doing is a low vaginal and um, an erectile swab and it should be documented on the request form that it is for GBS colonization. And when that happens, it is then grown in an enriched media. like It's, it's tested differently, essentially. Um to be able to so if someone's had swabs that are negative that does not imply that they do not have gps correct Mm. yeah and so point a says that there's no benefit for women or neonates from routine antibiotic use um for women who are known to be gps negative so i imagine that this point applies in australia if they're actually known on 35-week swab to be GBS negative, even if they hit 18 hours, I don't think they'll be getting antibiotics at that point at all until they get choreo and then they get the broad spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) Final recommendation, recommendation five. Um, This regards to the mode of induction. So uh, oxytocin is the usual method of induction. And again, prostaglandins may be used. Uh, with no real evidence to support their use, and where, however, mechanical methods, i.e. balloon catheters, are associated with an increased risk of infection. However, data is limited, but I think it it makes sense that Mm. placing a foreign body through the cervix is probably not the most effective or safe thing to do. Yes, quite. 
So, and the conclusion, I just, I love the, I just, I really do like this guideline. So the conclusion is planned early birth leads to reduced maternal infections, reduced neonatal infections, and greater maternal satisfaction without an increase in cesarean section. How lovely. Yep. Yep. Great work. This guideline is shorter in terms of pages and word count, whereas the content is improved. So and there's a, evidence. Yeah, makes it a good <laughs> clinical guideline. It is interpretable, it's clear, evidence-based guidelines, and it's readable and short. So we recommend that you go and read it. 